Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The British government seems torn between its hostility to the BBC at home and its realisation that the World Service offers a key tool of global soft power, one that keeps the United Kingdom central to how many listeners imagine the world and helps to subtly promote British perspectives on international affairs. Those are the words of today's guest, a professor of modern history at the University of Bristol whose lifelong research subject has been the BBC, perceptions of it across the world and international notions of Britishness as generated by such institutions, culminating in his book, This is the BBC, Entertaining the Nation, Speaking for Britain, 1922 to 2022. Welcome back to The Bunker, Professor Simon J. Potter. Thanks for having me, Alex. Simon, I want to start with something topical. I just read a quite extraordinary article by Lord Frost lambasting the BBC about possibly at some point in the future seeking somehow to change the last night of the proms. Has hostility towards the BBC ramped up in the last few years or is that actually a mistaken impression to someone like you who understands the corporation's history? Great question. So the book that you mentioned at the outset surveys the last century of the BBC's existence. And I think it's inescapable to draw the conclusion from looking at that 100 years of the BBC that it's always faced enemies and it's always faced hostility. And some Mm. of that hostility is phrased in ways that are very familiar to us today. So claims about the BBC not giving us enough choice not giving us good enough quality programs, the BBC having political biases. So so this idea that the BBC perhaps is stuffed with left-wingers, that's something that goes back right into the 1930s and, and probably even a bit earlier. The idea that the BBC is facing an unprecedented level of hostility, I think is probably true. And I think perhaps the only exception to that might be the Thatcher years. But the BBC has always faced attacks from hostile interest groups in politics, in business. Yeah. So those attacks have always been there. But I think perhaps it's the intensity that's so difficult for the BBC to deal with now. And also some some of the ways in which that hostility is being framed at the moment. And I think particularly in the example you mentioned there, this idea of the culture wars, this idea that politicians and other people who are hostile to the BBC want to use ideas about culture, about national identity, about cultural political agendas, I think that is something that is is a little bit new and phrased in a very particular way at the moment. So how important has the World Service particularly been in shaping international views of Britishness? So it's always difficult, isn't it, to try and weigh up the influence of something like the World Service compared to other ways that Britain has exerted a cultural or political influence on the rest of the world. So being a historian, I like to look at some historical anecdotes and, and precedents. And one really interesting memo I came across when I was doing some research, is a discussion that's going on at the BBC in the early 1930s. And they're talking about how to project British influence across the world. And even in the early 1930s, they're saying in these internal discussions, cinema, the Americans have that. 
Britain is never going to compete in the world of cinema because even by the mm -hmm. early 30s, you've got this American dominance of that medium. But what they think is that radio might be the way that Britain can find a niche for itself and he punch above its weight in, in international media. And even then in the 1930s, what they're saying is that the next big competition between Britain and America is going to be over television. And if Britain doesn't establish that sort of niche in radio, it will never be able to compete with Hollywood and American cultural influence on the screen. So even in that very early period, mm. contemporaries are saying radio is really important for Britain in particular to project its global influence. And I think you see that becoming really, really important again in the Second World War, the extent to which the BBC becomes the voice of Britain during the Second World War and is able to reach out into neutral, occupied enemy countries and really develop significant audiences in those places. And then seamlessly, the BBC moves into the Cold War and deploys many of the same sorts of techniques, even some of the same programs and program ideas get, get used again in the context of the Cold War to reach across the Iron Curtain and really give Britain a voice internationally. And I think you, know, you can see that continuing right up to the present, despite all of the challenges that the BBC faces. It claims that today it's got a global audience of somewhere around 500 million. And the vast majority of that audience is made up by people who listen to the World Service. So despite all the challenges, despite the funding cuts, the BBC has got a bigger audience globally than at any point in the past. And yet we see that the World Service in particular has been a target many, many times in the last decade. Is this simply what you were just describing, that this is a service consumed largely by non-voters, so why not kick it? Or is there something slightly more profound at work that is seeing Britain currently turn away from its outwards facing self? So, I mean, I think you're right. In some ways, the World Service is low-hanging fruit for a government that is hostile to the BBC. So, so as you mentioned, it's not something that uh, serves British voters, and it's directly. And so as a result, it's something that compared, for example, to attacking free licenses for pensioners, it's not something that has this great political potential for, for causing hostility mm, mm. To, the, to the government. Also, you know, up until 2014, the World Service was in part directly funded by the British government. So if you want to sort of attack something in terms of the BBC's funding that is easy to, to remove, then that historic subsidy to the World Service was something that could easily be, be withdrawn. I think a lot of though the damage to the BBC World Service financially has been almost, almost incidental because of this broader attack on BBC revenues through the freezing of the license fee, through uh, trying to restrict mm. what sorts of commercial enterprises the BBC could engage in. And as a result, the BBC itself has had to say, well, you know, where can we cut? And in terms of the BBC's own service to the British public, what are you going to cut? Are you going to cut services for domestic audiences or are you going to cut something like the World Service where there's no immediate political fallout or, or fallout for, for your popularity with your own domestic listeners and viewers? 
Brexit promised to be an opening of sort of global Britain to the world. And I mean, objectively, there is no more effective tool in that mission than the BBC. So why is there so much hostility from that side of politics specifically? I mean, I would have thought that what would follow Brexit would be a sort of an attempted takeover, basically, of the BBC in service of that mission. I don't mean that in a in a, a, a sort of clandestine way. I mean, you know, an enlisting of the BBC in service of that mission. But that hasn't happened. The opposite has happened. Why is that? I mean, it, at the deepest level, I think it's a reflection of the lack of joined up policymaking. It's uh, a reflection of the, the failure of the government to follow through on its rhetoric about a global Britain and really seriously promote that as a, as a policy goal. I think beyond that, it is a consequence of deep-rooted domestic hostility to the BBC and to the whole idea of public broadcasting. So, you know, we can see this certainly in the, hmm. the, the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition under David Cameron and the subsequent Conservative government under Cameron and, and its successors, that there is a deep-rooted feeling that public broadcasting is not something that has ever really accorded with Conservative values. It certainly didn't correspond with Thatcherite's values of, of how the, the broadcasting industry should operate. And I think that has been heightened by this sense in the 21st century, public broadcasting looks like some sort of hangover from the past. It doesn't correspond with the nature of the, mm -hmm. of the global mass media in uh, our current age. And it's something basically that's akin to a nationalized public utility that has lived beyond its sell-by date and, and now needs to be quietly euthanized. So I think you've got that, you've got that sort of domestic political hostility and ideological hostility to the whole idea of the BBC as well. And then I think finally, the World Service has really tried throughout its existence to promote the idea that it's independent that it's not the voice of government. I think if you look at the history of the World Service, there are certainly many mm -hmm. clear examples of you know, cases and mechanisms by which the government has been able to influence the World Service. But ultimately, the World Service claims to be editorially independent. And that means that politicians, civil servants can't dictate the editorial line of the World Service and can't dictate the contents of broadcasts. As a member of the government, that might not look like the best sort of tool for projecting your foreign policy objectives overseas. Although I think mm, in reality, yes. that independence and that sense of autonomy is actually the uh, great resource the World Service offers. And it's precisely what sells what it. Yeah, exactly. And, and what previous politicians and previous governments have really recognized that an independent, trustworthy, BBC that's viewed by international audiences as a reliable source of news and information, that's a much more powerful tool of international persuasion than a directly state-controlled broadcaster. You wrote in Foreign Affairs recently, extolling the value of world service abroad, that, and I quote, sometimes the most reliable news comes from very far away. 
Do you think the reverse also applies? I read a lot of foreign press and I watch a lot of foreign news and sometimes the clarity with which they report what is happening in the UK is really quite bracing. And it is difficult not to think that the fundamental difference is simply that they don't care if they piss off the UK government. Yes, and I think I think you can you can see that in some of the press releases, the BBC issues about about the nature of the World Service and, and its role, all through the controversies that we've seen over the last ten years or so about the BBC. The BBC is very very careful in the way it presents itself to governments and the way the way mm. it, it protects its role. Do you think that has hurt the BBC recently in that instead of reaching for impartiality and balance, sometimes it ends up with the most uh, palatable rather than the most accurate analysis? I think that's true for some of the BBC's domestic news coverage and domestic political coverage aimed at British audiences. I'm not sure it's quite as true for what the World Service does. I think, though, it damages the perception of the neutrality and reliability of BBC News. Because again, I mean, this is one of the one of the other sticks that's been used to beat the BBC by its opponents. This claim that it's not, in fact, politically neutral or objective, that there is a, a consistent editorial bias in its coverage of certain issues. The BBC's response has been to really, I think, double down on this idea of truth, truthful and trusted news. So, so there's, a, there's a disconnect between the rhetoric that the BBC uses to defend itself and the rhetoric that its opponents use to attack it. I absolutely take your point. But last week I interviewed the chief executive of the Independent Society of Musicians. And much of that conversation was peppered with befuddlement at why these immense conduits of soft power internationally are at best ignored and at worst hobbled. I mean, we have had 11 culture secretaries in 10 years, some lasting as little as a month. So there is something more general at work, isn't there? I think you're right. I think a lot of it comes down to the nature of policymaking under recent governments and, you know, the sense of inability to pursue any consistent line in policymaking at home or overseas. Um, so the BBC is is sort of, you know, I think mm. you can see it's it's been put in this very difficult position when it comes to its international broadcasting. So, you know, 2014, the Foreign Office grant to the BBC is withdrawn, but within a year, emergency funding is found through the development budget to keep it going. Then a couple of years ago, further cuts to the BBC's World Service budget, and then you get these, these drip, this drip feeding of money coming in to support the World Service and these one-off grants to do X, Y, and Z to promote, you know, for example, services to Ukraine and Russia to keep certain Asian language services going. As somebody trying to run a massive global broadcasting operation like the BBC, it's not hugely helpful to, to have a government that on the one hand is taking away your long-term mm. funding and on the other hand is providing these grudging doles of money every year or so, it's not the basis for, for stable decision-making within the BBC. And I think cynics can't help but conclude that there's, you know, maybe this is a result of 
poor policymaking, or maybe it's a desire to actually put the BBC World Service under a tighter rein, because if it doesn't behave itself, those year-on-year doles of money stop coming. Do you think there is a way to make the model structurally more stable? I genuinely don't know what that might be. I am relying on you to give some ideas, maybe make the funding settlement longer, maybe set up an outside organization that is, you know, like the OBR or, you know, something that is a government agency, but independent of government that sort of decides policy on a longer term basis. I don't know. Do you have ideas? I think... If you look at the historic arguments about how best to fund the BBC and how best to fund international broadcasting, and the BBC's case has always been that having a reliable fiscal settlement that can be predicted over a reasonably long term provides the best way to have a good but also particularly an independent public broadcaster. So the traditional system of having the BBC funded by a license fee settlement that is guaranteed for a period of 10 years and that can't really be interfered with, that was always held as being the model of independent, good public broadcasting. That is now under, as we know, a lot of challenges from people who don't think the license fee is a fair or modern way of funding broadcasting. I think the other way that the BBC has looked at this is saying, well, direct government funding of the World Service is important, and that government funding should be reliable, but also shouldn't come with too many strings attached. So, you know, in public, at least, and I think a lot of people doubt whether it's quite this simple in private, but in public, the system was always that the Foreign Office provided a grant in aid. It told the BBC what languages to broadcast in and how many hours to broadcast for each week in those languages and then let the BBC get on and do it. Whether that's the reality, it's, it's hard to tell. Many suspect there are stronger lines of government influence there behind the scenes. But that was all swept away in 2014. So the question is, well, do you say the best way to protect the BBC from uh, the vicissitudes of domestic politics, to protect the World Service from these domestic political wrangles, is to split it off make it something separate and autonomous and give it guaranteed stable long-term funding. I think the problem with that, first of all, is you know mm. you would doubt that in reality that would deliver that sort of stability and independence. It would also erode the status of the World Service as being this independent voice because it would, it would much more clearly seem to be the, the voice of the British government, the British state. But also, the I think the big problem is you would lose the sort of the BBC brand, the trustworthiness, reliability that goes along with the fact that it is the BBC that doesn't just serve British audiences, but also serves international audiences and seems to be an autonomous, reliable, trustworthy broadcaster. I mean, the last chairman of the BBC, just before he resigned after the, the scandal about, about financial support for Boris Johnson, he made this appeal that, you know, basically it should go back to the system pre-2014 and that the British government should just give the BBC money to do this job of international broadcasting. And that was the only way to, to meet the challenges of Russian, Chinese, other foreign rivals and their international broadcasting mm -hmm. operations. I think the problem is that just seems like pie in the sky. 
I, I could not imagine a conservative government going back to to that system of, of funding and organizing international broadcasting. I can't really imagine any government wanting to go back to that system. Let me play devil's advocate and ask one final question in order to end on a more positive note. I return to what we started with, the theme that emerges from your book, that the BBC has almost always been embattled in one way or another, and that this is precisely what has forged it into the organisation it is. Is there not an optimistic scenario in which its current embattlements might also make it stronger? I'd hope so. <laughs> and it's good to end on a note of optimism. I mean, I think, I think when you look at how the BBC more broadly is trying to adapt to all of the challenges that it faces, I think there is, there is a sort of an exit strategy that the BBC has developed and that's, that's sitting there behind the scenes that probably most people who watch BBC television in Britain, listen to BBC radio, don't know too much about. But behind the scenes, a lot of the stuff that the BBC now does is done by what is effectively a commercial broadcasting organization called BBC Studios. And in effect, the public BBC is paying BBC Studios to do a lot of the work of producing programs for it. And you could imagine that, you know, the phoenix that rises from the ashes of the BBC, if you know, the license fee is abolished, and if the public broadcasting corporation is fundamentally reformed, I think you could see that the, the phoenix that rises from the ashes of public broadcasting is this BBC branded commercial broadcaster, which is you know, making programs for whatever, whatever is left of of the public corporation, but is also making programs for Netflix, making programs for Prime TV, for Amazon, for Apple, whoever. And it's getting that BBC branded programming out there on global platforms around the world and is able to compete in the future marketplace of big transnational global media concerns. So, so maybe that is, is where the future lies and you know, the the ending of the license fee of public broadcasting of the world service is is part of that whole transition. It is a path that I'm sure is strewn with obstacles and dangers and pitfalls, and it's not a sort of a simple solution to the BBC's problems or to securing British soft power in the future. Professor Simon J. Potter, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks for talking to me about this. Remember, we are also a service and we are also available around the world. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of Raphael Baer on a column that I remember quite well from a few years ago. The corporation is more rigorously self-critical than pretty much any large organization on earth. It leads the news with its own scandals. It interrogates its own executives on air. It satirizes itself with self-flagellating relish. These are exceptional traits. They express an ethos that, while codified in guidelines, could never be faithfully replicated because it has evolved over time. It is a culture, not a system, a civilizing thread woven through the fabric of British democracy. This is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... 
I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Liam Tate. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. And the assistant producer was Adam Wright. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. And the managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.